0: After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days.
1: Hey, you know, it's Christmas time, and uh, so I have a question for you. I want you to capture the answer and turn to the person near you and share it with them, okay? What is your favorite, or at least at the top of your list, uh, favorite Christmas carol or song? What is it? Okay? To share it with the person next to you. What do you like to hear every year, sing every year? <clears throat> All right. All right. Okay. I, I I just said one song. One song. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, how many, of you, uh, how many of you said silent night? Raise your hand. Wow, a lot of silent night. Any hark to herald angels sing? A few of those. Any grandma got run over by a reindeer? <laughs> right, yeah, I thought so. I saw them laughing back there. All right. Uh, uh, how about uh, joy to the world? Any joy to the world? Yeah, that's, that's me. I, I really enjoy joy to the world. And as we're going to see uh, on uh, December 24th on Christmas Eve, we're going to return to Luke chapter 2. Jesus entering into our world was a joyous occasion. The joy of Jesus' birth is linked to what it represents, that God the Son entered into our world to provide the forgiveness of sins, to reconcile us with our Heavenly Father by living and the life that we were to live and dying the death that we actually deserve because of our sin. And so this is why we carve out each year this time where we celebrate His first Advent and we look in hope to the second Advent, this Advent season is a joyous season in the Christian year. And in our passage this morning, we see this joy that Jesus brings to a very unlikely person. And in doing so, it teaches us that Jesus brings lasting joy. He brings eternal joy, not the joylessness of human religion. So this morning we want to consider this uh, interaction with a man by the name of Levi who most of us know better as Matthew, the author of the first gospel in the New Testament. It's Matthew, his other name was Levi. And this interaction that they have with one another, I want us to break it down into three sections and then consider how it applies to us in the 21st century. So let's begin by noting how Matthew's story and interaction with Jesus is actually the story of every believer. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. I don't know about you, but every time I get a letter that has in the upper left-hand corner, the, the phrase IRS, there is something within me that kind of just clinches, right? Even if I've done nothing, I don't believe I've done anything wrong, I just get the heebie-jeebies. There's something about it, probably not, you know, valid, but there it is. Well, as much as that may be the case in our day, it was even worse in Matthew's day. In first century uh, Israel, the tax collectors were hated, by their fellow uh, Jewish citizens. The reason why was, first of all, they tended to be dishonest. Uh, They were given a certain amount of money that they were supposed to raise. Everything above that amount, they could keep for themselves, and they did. And they would charge exorbitant fees for every little thing. And then they were also hated because all that extra money meant they were now rich. And so you had the normal class, you know, tension between the poor and the rich. And then, of course, there's this whole idea of them collaborating. They were seen as traitors. They were working on behalf of the occupiers, the Roman Empire. But even more significantly, spiritually speaking, they were considered to be perpetually unclean because they were continually interacting and associating with Gentiles. And so... In the Jewish mindset, to those who were conservative and upright and steadfast, the the tax collectors were in the same category as the Samaritans, as the leper, who we saw last week. And this meant that, as one guy put it, Matthew was sinfully rich and socially ostracized. This was Matthew's life. And yet, even with all of that, as maybe we think he's so different than us, there's several points of commonality between his story and the story of every person who ever comes to Jesus. Verse 27 says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Which well, the very first thing you see here, which is common to everyone who ever follows Jesus, is that Jesus initiates the action. It is Jesus who comes to us. It is Jesus who pursues us, and why does he do this? Because before the foundations of the world were ever even created, God determined that he would give people to Jesus, and as Jesus said, everyone that the Father has given to me, I will not lose one, and so he pursues his people, and then he ushers to us this call to follow him, to, to repent and to believe and trust in him, as we heard Jonathan talk about with Sonora's baptism, And then, of course, that call requires a response. And you see this on the part of of Matthew, how he is willing to leave everything if necessary because Jesus is now his Lord and Savior. Listen, if you're here this morning and you know that there is something in your life that is just not right, there there is not this lasting joy that Jesus provides. There is this emptiness. There is something wrong in the inner core of your being, and you sense that God is reaching out to you and he's calling you. This met the process that, that you see with Matthew, this response to this call, this is the way you experience this joy. This is the way that you have your sins forgiven and you enter into this eternal relationship with your heavenly Father And I would encourage you, if you sense Jesus calling you this morning, get out of your booth. We all start in the same way. We all start in our little booth doing life the way we think we need to do it in order to get the life that we want to to get. And maybe that even requires us to be dishonest or to cut corners or to do any number of things to, to have the kind of existence that we want for ourselves and our family. But when Jesus comes, he says, follow me. Turn your back on your own way of doing life and instead admit who you are, confess your sinfulness and embrace me as Lord. Follow me. Points of commonality. Another point of commonality is that after you come to Jesus, it's interesting how badly you want others who you know, who you love to know Jesus. And so you see this with Matthew and and the way he introduces his friends and loved ones to Jesus is he throws a big party. Levi made him a great feast. In the, England, in, the, in the underlying language, this is a bodacious party. Okay, not really, but that is the idea here. He throws them an incredible party in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So here's all of these undesirable people in the Hebrew culture, and they're all gathered together at this party because Matthew is so excited about what Jesus has done in his life, he can't wait to tell others about him. Those of you who came to Christ maybe as a teenager or an adult, do you remember that? When you came to him, how your life was filled with just joy and relief and a sense of security and belonging. And and what did you wanna do? This was so good, you wanted to share it with the people who are most important to your life. This is just a common story that we all experience, this joy that floods your soul. I can't stress this enough, but those of you who are seeking answers, the answers that you're seeking are found in Jesus. He is the one who provides lasting eternal joy, comes through him. In this passage, there's two scenes of joy. First is the party itself. Right? Here's Matthew, he's rich, which means you know, <clears throat> he took time to make sure the DJ was in place and the caterer was in place and maybe he hired a valet company to park the chariots well. I don't know, but he threw a, an incredible party and it's joyful, it's filled with joy and the Pharisees don't like it. There's something wrong, you're having too much fun. You ever met people like that who are religious and they claim to be followers of Christ, and yet their middle name should be Killjoy, right? <laughs> Killjoy. So it should be their middle name. And then there's another scene. It's kind of a little more subtle, but it's here. It was simply the normal disposition and life of the disciples. The disciples are criticized by the Pharisees because you're having too much fun, you're too joyful. You're eating and drinking and happy, and this was driving the Pharisees crazy. They couldn't stand it. So that takes us to the second section. First was the story of every believer, and then the resistance of the religious unbelievers. Verse 31, or verse 30, excuse me. And the Pharisees and their scribes, they grumbled at his disciples, that Jesus' disciples saying. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Their their first resistance was because Jesus was hanging out with the undesirable people. He wasn't hanging out with the the theologically conservative and doctrinally correct Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? In their world, you got to understand, this was scandalous, because in their world, eating with sinners identified you with them. It meant that you accepted them, that you approved of them, and that you were identifying with them. In that time of of history in the world, you only ate with people who were of your tribe, who you were in agreement with, that you identified with. And so they had a conundrum. They've come to Jesus because he has this reputation for being a holy man, at the very least a prophet maybe greater than John the Baptist. Who knows, maybe he's even the Messiah, and yet he's hanging out with the sinners and the people who were undesirable, which meant, well, then you're identifying with them, not with us, the religiously good people. And that doesn't make sense to them. I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, even in our own day, people on the hard right and on the hard left uh, They can't separate association from acceptance. In other words, the only way you can associate with us, that you can hang out with us, is if you agree with us and approve of everything that we believe and think. It's become so, you know, I don't know, so divisive in our culture today. It's like you can't have relationships and friendships with people that you don't agree with on every little matter. And this was what happened with the Pharisees. Verse 33 They said to him, the disciples of John fast often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in those days. The the second area of resistance centered on the ongoing joyfulness of the disciples that I referred to just a moment ago. Their, Their enjoyment of life and And from the the, the Pharisees' perspective, they perceived this as a lack of devotion to the holiness of God. They perceived this as as a lazy approach to worshiping God and following God and obeying him. You see, in their culture, fasting was extremely important. And so the disciples and Jesus' refusal to fast was in their mind a, a black mark because they were not properly worshiping and God and devoted to him. There was something wrong with that. We had to use our word. There was something wrong with their sanctification. They were a little too much on the libertine side of the spectrum. The Pharisees, the religiously devout people, they fasted twice a week from sunup to sundown. And, and they're really Religiously devoted person, the person who wanted you to know how religiously devoted they were, they would even before they went out in public, they would apply a little bit of, you know, makeup, whitish makeup, to make their face look less healthy, like they were so weak from their fasting. And look at how pitiful I, I look. You know, I'm so devoted to God, I'm about to pass out. And, and it, was all, it was all just an effort to appear devoted and holy to God. They wanted people to know this. But Jesus, he knew something about the Pharisees. Even the Pharisees taught that it was improper to fast on a day when you had been invited to a wedding because a wedding was a joyous celebration. And so even if it fell on the day that you normally fasted, on that day, you were exempted from pa- fasting. Instead, you were supposed to go to the wedding and you were to celebrate and, and enjoy it. I think probably in part, they just didn't want to miss out on the free food. I don't know. But uh, there it was. It was a big day. And so Jesus, he kind of turns this on them. He answers their objections by drawing upon a a very common Old Testament analogy. If you look at the Old Testament, you will repeatedly see that God describes himself as the bridegroom who is going to one day come, and he's going to rescue his people, the Israelites, the people who are true to him. And so Jesus turns this on the Pharisees, and don't miss what he's saying to them. He's saying, my disciples cannot fast right now because the bridegroom is here. Do you see what he's saying? For all of you who think, and maybe you're questioned, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. This is the beginning in the book of Luke where we start seeing Jesus at first subtly and then more obviously and more blatantly until it's just out there in plain language where Jesus says, yes, I am God in the flesh. I'm the bridegroom, I have come. And because I've come, it's a joyous occasion. I'm here. Because this is what Jesus does. He brings joyfulness, not the joylessness of legalistic religion. And the Pharisees, they couldn't understand this joy. They couldn't understand why Jesus would not embrace their way of life, why, would with, why he would not agree with them that this is how a holy, righteous, good person is supposed to live. And so this leads us to the third category in this passage, and that is the focus of Jesus' mission. The key verse in this passage is verse 32. Let's begin in verse 31. Jesus answered them and he gave them a, a common, a, a, a popular proverb in that day those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then to apply that to the spiritual realm, verse 32, key verse. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The problem, the problem with legalistic man-made religion, the problem with the way most of us operate in the world until Jesus intervenes in our life, is that our default view of ourselves is that we are righteous. We are good. That we, you know... We may not be perfect. We, we can admit that. We're not perfect, right? But on balance, when you measure everything out, we're pretty good, right? I mean, look at the person next to you. Except for the person sitting next to Wilson, we'd all agree, we're good, right? <laughs> no, I'm teasing. He's my buddy. I can do that to him.
0: Right?
1: We're good. That, that's our natural default response. And yet Jesus says, that's the problem. I can't help somebody who feels like they're good that they're righteous. There's no hope for that person. Jesus can't save and deliver any of us who don't first start by agreeing with him about ourselves. That we are born sinners desperately in need of God's mercy and grace without hope, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. And until we start there, Jesus can't help. Jesus can't rescue. Jesus can't save. So sin and repentance and seeing ourselves the way we need to is at the heart of Jesus' message and his mission is to open our eyes and to help us to have the vision that we need to see ourselves the way we are. We all desperately need God's saving mercy and his sustaining grace, something that the Pharisees, they had lost that understanding I think it's interesting in, in the book of Matthew, Matthew in his account of his calling, which is kind of curious, right? He's, he refers to, he adds another saying of Jesus. and it's not, Matthew and Luke aren't contradicting. I mean, it's very likely that Jesus said several things and Luke picked this. But Matthew's version goes, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. That word sacrifice is important. The the Pharisees, the religious people of our world, they are known for their sacrifice. They are known for doing what is considered good and right within their religious system. All of the world's religions have this, do this, don't do that. And I think that's the lyric in the song. But anyway, do this and don't do that. And and you're good with your God and, you know, paradise, heaven, nirvana, whatever is, is waiting for you. This is the sacrifice part. And the Pharisees, they had this down. Understand, in our church world, we have more in common with Pharisees than we have differences. Okay, They were morally good people. They believed the Ten Commandments and they tried to abide by it. They believed the law of God and tried to abide by it. They were respectable. They worshiped the one true God. They were devoted to Him. They, they fasted and they went to the temple and they made their sacrifices. They said their prayers. They raised their children to not be Hellions. Right? They, they, they were good people by human standards. They were all about the sacrifice. But what does Jesus say? "I desire mercy." See, sacrifice and living a good life without a God-regenerated heart it's a waste of time, from an eternal perspective. It's good for society, don't get me wrong. If our choice is between people who are you know, basically being good citizens versus people who are you know, raising Cain and hell and everything else, let's take the people who are good citizens. I mean, it's good for society, but from an eternal perspective, just simply being a good person is, is a waste of time. That gets us nowhere, got the Pharisees nowhere, because they didn't have a God-regenerated heart. They didn't understand mercy because they never saw that they needed mercy from God. They didn't extend grace because they never admitted that they needed God's grace, that they were in a condition of being so lost that they were helpless, needing God's intervention in their life. Are you there? Do you believe that? That without God's intervention in your life, without his grace and mercy being poured out upon you, you're hopeless? If you aren't, Jesus can't help you. It starts there. Jesus does not rescue the person who doesn't first see their desperate need for his mercy and grace. But the good news is if you do see that, you're sitting in your booth and you have your life and you're pursuing your dreams and your goals, but you know something is not right in your life, you know something is missing in your life, And you begin to understand, yes, all of the good things I do, they don't matter for anything against the standard of God's perfection, his holiness. We don't even come close. All have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. If that's where you're at this morning and you believe that, please see me after the service. Swing by the care table where we have spiritual advisors. Let's have a conversation about the next steps like you see with Matthew so that you can experience eternal life, that you can have this joy that only Jesus brings. All right, what does this mean for us? When we think about this interaction with Matthew, church, How does it apply for us in the the 21st century? I think there's a few gospel applications this morning that I want to highlight that all deal with the idea in one way or another of evangelism and living on mission for Jesus Christ. The very first thing I think we should point out is that fundamentally, I mean, when you boil it all down and you distill it down, fundamentally evangelism is introducing people to Jesus. Evangelism is introducing people to Jesus, but right there is where many of us have a problem. We don't get invited to all the parties like Jesus and the disciples were. It's very easy for us to put up walls instead of building bridges, and so as a result, the people who need to be introduced to Jesus don't actually want to hang out with us. This is a problem, especially like with the Pharisees, like churches like ours that are conservative, theologically, doctrinally. This is a problem. We really are good at building walls and barriers because of our very strong beliefs about what is right and what is wrong, and so we have a difficult time having real relationships, real friendships, true, you know, uh, true companionship and fellowship with people who don't agree with what we believe comes from God in his word. And so we build up walls instead of bridges. And so what I would encourage all of us to think about this morning is what is our prime directive? Uh, prime, how many of you recognize that phrase, prime directive? Okay, live long and prosper. Okay, that was Star Trek, right? Uh, you know the prime directive? Uh, that was their, their first marching order. When they came to a people, a new people... They had to step back and think, how do we interact with them so that we don't mess up their society and their culture and their timeline? We can't you know, introduce them to phasers while they're shooting bows and arrows. It'll mess up their culture. You get it, okay? They had to step back and think about how do we interact with those who are not in the same place that we are? And Christian, we need to remember that prime directive, to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is to befriend and love, reflect Jesus to people who need Jesus, to love them, to be their true friends, to interact with them, and wait for those opportunities to introduce them to Jesus. And for the love of all that is holy, let's don't introduce them to more Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Okay? Okay? Let's don't waste our capital introducing them to Calvinism or Arminianism or our parenting philosophy or this issue or that issue. Let's save our ammunition and our bullets for where it matters, and that is introduce them to Jesus. And other than that, be a great guy and gal to be around. Be a good friend who loves them and wants to be with them. Our prime directive is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus, beginning and end, right there, right? Secondly, an evangelistic mindset is go and reach, not sit and hope. An evangelistic mindset is go and reach, not sit and hope. So let's think about this. You know, we're about to... We're in the home stretch, guys. I mean, in the spring, unless you know, something just completely blah, happens, we're moving into a beautiful new facility. Beautiful new facility. I can't wait, I walked around the other day. They have the paint colors now on the front, if you get a chance to see what it's gonna look like. And it looks great. And they've done so many, I mean, it's, it's gonna be beautiful. Building committee, you've just done such a phenomenal job. Let's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Phenomenal job. And and we know, and we've said this over and over again, it's not about the building, it's about the church, the people, and what the facility facilitates. And what we want it to facilitate is ministry, reaching out to people who don't know Christ and, and helping those who do know Christ worship our transcendent Holy God and, and helping facilitate connections among God's people so that we're in community with one another and that our children are being raised in a nurture and There's so much that a, a wonderful facility can facilitate when it comes to the Christian life. But be ready. We'll have lots of people come through the doors, maybe who are already believers. We are not going to see floods of lost people pounding on our door saying, please let us in. Did they do that with our last facility? No. Now, you'll have some, but don't expect a flood of people who don't know Jesus in any way, shape, or form to to come pound on our door saying, please, could I come to church here this week? Not gonna happen. Daryl Bach writes, for evangelism to be effective, the unsaved must be reached since they are not looking to come into the church. Guarantee you, your, your, your friends and neighbors who do not know the Lord, who seem to have no interest in him, the very last thing on their list of things to do today was to go to church with Tracy, right? Well, it wasn't gonna happen, that's the last thing on their list. And that's not gonna change. And so if we expect to see lost people ultimately coming to Christ and coming into our fellowship, it starts not by us opening up the doors of a new church. It starts by us opening up the doors of our homes. It starts by us opening up the doors of our lives and our families and creating and establishing true, genuine relationships with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and those who are interested in having a relationship. It starts with your coworkers saying, Hey, we're gonna go out after work and you know, have some fun. You wanna come? Sure. That's what you want. What you don't want is your coworkers getting together, hey. Don't tell Steve, but we're gonna go over to after after work and uh, it's on the QT. Don't face, don't post anything on Instagram because we don't want Steve to know that we're over here having a good time after work. I mean, that's not what we're after, right? And so I want to encourage you. You know, for years we have been encouraged and we've preached this message. See, by the way, this is an object lesson for why you don't want to sit in the front. But uh you know, <laughs> Because you might get wrapped into an illustration, but Steve and Tracy are good people, by the way, just for the record. Uh, You know, we've preached and we've emphasized for years, you know, opening our homes. And we actually have adopted this phrase, Matthew parties. And several of you, you've had Matthew parties, and I just want to encourage you, keep it up. It takes more than two or three cookouts It takes dozens of interactions with people who don't know Jesus for them to trust us that we actually just want to be their friends. We want to love them well. We want to, if they want to, we want to introduce them to Jesus. But if they don't, we respect that boundary. But we're there for them because we love them and we want to be their friends. Now I know this is hard. Some of you, you've You've, you've jumped right in on this, but if I'm honest, most of us probably in this room, this is difficult. You know, we, we have in, in ourselves, there is an inner resistance. You know, we're not wired to just open up our homes and our lives. In fact, the very idea of having people come into our homes and into our lives that really aren't in that super special select list, it fills us with fear and anxiety, and so this morning, I want to introduce you to one of our founding fathers, not founding fathers of our denomination, but of our nation. You probably recognize this painting. This was by John Trumbull, the signing of the Declaration. It's in the Rotunda in Washington. It was done in the 18, early 1800s. I don't think I have a laser on this thing, do I? Uh, Anyway, this dude, you you see the guy standing up, and on the other side of those guys sitting down, the second guy from the right, you probably can't see him anyway, that guy's name is John Witherspoon. He is the only signer of the declaration who was a pastor, member of the clergy. He was a Presbyterian pastor, he was born in Scotland. He ministered there for years, had a phenomenal ministry, was seen as a man of great integrity, very accomplished pastor and scholar, and and the people in the colonies in the 1760s began to invite him. They said, please come. We want you to take the leadership of this college over here in New Jersey that's struggling and failing, college that we now know as Princeton University. A lot hasn't changed recently. Anyway, no, I didn't say that. Princeton University. And so he actually comes in the late 1760s and he becomes a professor and the the president of the university and he's very well respected. He has an incredible ministry in the new world. He starts Presbyterian churches. He ends up being the moderator of the first general assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America in the 1700s. So he was extremely well respected. He's invited to be a member of the Continental Congress of his students 37 of them will become judges. Three of them were Supreme Court judges. Ten cabinet officers. Twelve members of the Continental Congress were his students. Uh, Four dozen congressmen. Two dozen senators come out of his ministry and his years in the colonies. And I bring all that up because of what he said about fear. He says, It is only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. And the fear of God here isn't the terror of God. It's the the awe of God, the love of God, the, the overwhelming sense of God's grace and mercy and the joy that fills our life because we belong to Jesus. This is the fear of God and what drives out The fear of opening our lives and our hearts and our families and our church to those who don't need Jesus is the wholehearted worship of God and thankfulness and gratitude for what he has done for us. One final application this morning. We must guard against theological pride which leads to arrogant isolationism and pietistic separatism. This is what happened to the Pharisees. And listen, people who believe the Bible is the word of God, there just seems to be historically a drift towards this end of the spectrum. Again, where we build walls, not bridges. I mentioned uh, Star Trek a few moments ago. Well, I was watching Star Wars this week, and I happened to—actually, I was just flipping through the channels, and I came across the scene where, you know, in the Clone Wars, the Jedi, actually, they all jump out. There's this horde of Jedi with their, with their lightsabers, and this is Samuel L. Jackson Jedi, uh, who's got his, and they're charging the drones, and it was a great scene. And you, those of you who've seen it, you know, they're all—they have their lightsabers, I'm You know, everything that's shot at them, they knock it to the side and, you know, they're just hell bent on attacking the enemy who's destroying civilizations. I thought, what a great picture of God's people or what should be God's people because we have the sword of the spirit. We have the inspired, inerrant word of God capable of knocking away every dart of the devil, any false ideology and belief. We have the answer in the word of God And so are we attacking when those moments arise in a graceful, effective way? Or do we circle the wagons? See, that's the other image. The Pharisees had come to the place where they were circling the wagons. They became an echo chamber. And they were guarding, they were playing defense, living out of fear of the attacks and the disagreements that were happening. So we have a choice. Are we going to circle the wagons, be a circle the wagon people, or are we going to, to wield the sword of truth? Kent Hughes tells the story of John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were great preachers in the, the first Great Awakening. In the 1700s, they were known, they would go to the to the, the farm, fields, and they would call the farmers together. They would go to the mines, and they would get the miners at lunch break or afterward. They would go wherever the people were. They would go to the tavern. They'd go to the street, and they would begin preaching the gospel to these folks and holding services of worship. And the thing is, that did not match the the book of church order of the Church of England, the equivalent of that book. And so the leaders of the Church of England, who were conservative theologically at that time, doctrinally at that time, uh, they insisted, you can't do this. You cannot proclaim the good news and the gospel to people in this manner. You cannot worship God in this manner. And, And yet all these people, thousands of people, were coming to Christ into the preaching and ministries of these men until finally they kicked them out of the Church of England. They rescinded their ordination. John Wesley very reluctantly started a new denomination. He didn't want to. It was Methodism. And that all came about because of the resistance to be a Jedi and instead circled wagons. Now, now fast forward. Philip Riken tells the story of the around 1860 a young man on a Sunday evening who comes to his church, a Methodist church, And he opens up the side door and very, almost, you know, just overjoyed, he ushers in dozens of people from the streets. And they are dressed like people of the streets. And they are the down and outers, and they are the alcoholics, and they are the homeless, and they are the people who clearly did not normally come to a Methodist church at that time. And he marches them in, and he sits them right in the front pews, right in front of the pastor. The pews, by the way, that other people paid to sit in. And he just took their seats. And he, was, he, he thought, man, this is the best night ever. The pastor and the leadership is going to be overjoyed at all these people who need Jesus, who've come to hear the gospel. And what was their response? They ended up kicking this young man out of their church and his wife. They struggled For about 10 years but this young man understood that we don't sit and wait and hope we go and reach and so he went out into the streets and he ended up starting a ministry that you're going to see in front of Publix on Sunday morning the Salvation Army that young man was William Booth and Philip Ryken told that story because his own great-grandfather was on the streets of Scotland as an alcoholic who the Salvation Army went and got and brought him in and led him to Christ, and it changed the trajectory of the Reichen family forever. This is what it means for us to introduce people to Jesus. Church, we have to be careful. As Kent Hughes tells us, we can become so Christianized, we can be Christianized right out of our Christianity. What happened to the Church of England? What happened to that Methodist church, it can happen to us, it can happen to our church so easily if we do not keep the main thing the main thing. May God give us the grace to do so. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the way you have interacted and you have pursued us and intervened in our lives the way you did with Matthew. And Lord, we pray for those that we know, that we love, that we work with, that we have in our families and our neighborhoods, would you give us the grace and mercy we need so that we can introduce them to our Savior, so that they can have their sins forgiven, so that they can experience this everlasting, eternal joy, the joy that comes through you, Lord Jesus. For the person here this morning who needs that joy, may you give them the courage to to say a word, to stop by, to to talk with us so that we can introduce them to you. In your name we pray, amen.